0: What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from indiehackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these indie hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. i'm here with justin jackson the founder of transistor which is a very successful podcast hosting company it's what i'm using to host this podcast um and also my other podcast brains justin welcome back the hackers i think this is your third time on the show
1: yeah well it's good it's just good to chat with you it's, it's actually good it to chat is. with any human being these yeah. days
0: <laughs> yeah yeah well you're particularly fun to talk to you because you are very easy to talk to you. we have our, like our twitter dms back and forth where we share like random thoughts on stuff but it's good to just like flow
1: yeah totally yeah I, i've noticed the change in the way you do the show when i listen it's, it's become a lot more conversational
0: yeah well it's much more fun to have like authentic normal conversations and there's this idea of a um like you're familiar with the concept of like an overton window it's kind of like what are you allowed to say what are you not allowed to say like There's kind of like in polite society, there's just bounds on like things that everybody agrees are okay and everybody doesn't agree are okay. And I think if you have a show or an audience, Twitter account, a newsletter or whatever, like you kind of create your own Overton window. Meaning that like whatever it is that you put out, the people who like it will stick with you and the people who don't, won't. And so you can kind of do whatever you want on your own show, but like once you like pick something, you're kind of locked into it because now your audience (laughs) wants that. And so it's always yeah. kind of hard to change the format of a podcast show cuz it's like if I've been doing interviews for a long time and then I'm like, "You know what? I want to do more conversational stuff." A lot of people will be yeah. like, "What the hell? What happened to the interviews?" Yeah.
1: yeah, what an interesting idea. Like what's uh Bon Jovi's Overton window? It's like everyone wants to hear the same songs over and over again. They don't want to, Right. <laughs> they, they don't want to see they want they don't want anything new, right?
0: You get locked in.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, and this is a real actually this is a fundamental challenge of life which is i do think people need to grow businesses need to grow and change and adapt and people don't like change but if you don't change you kind of you can recede you know you can your business can die over time just because it becomes gradually more irrelevant or doesn't respond to current market conditions and then you as a person you know you might like being comfortable in the moment I in some ways I have this with transistor John and I talk my co-founder talk about this all the time, which is okay, we made it like this is what so many indie entrepreneurs right. want a successful SaAS company that's you know making good revenue and we have uh, we have it's a team of four now so we have Jason as a full-time uh, software developer and Helen full-time on customer success but it's a small team. And it's just very comfortable. But there's also this nagging thought of like, well, we can't stay here. Like the business has to evolve. And we as individuals have to evolve too. And so how how are we going to move forward, uh, not get too comfortable, not stay in the same place? And yeah, in some ways, the comfort is... Uh, impediment. Uh, In other ways, though, eh, the dynamics aren't as simple as people say, you know, like it's like, oh, well, if you're too comfortable, then then, you know, that's that's almost worse than being desperate. And I don't agree with that at all. (laughs) The, The 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 underlying margin that especially good finances provides, it's so crucial. It's just so it just seems so good in terms of being able to have time to think and be creative and maneuver and try experiments and Mm -hmm. push yourself to be a little uncomfortable
0: you've made like a few of these sort of transitions where i think you were like doing good at something or maybe not but then you were able to like leap into like the next level so like if i look at like Earlier in your life, you know, you you wrote a blog post about this, actually, how you were surrounded by these sort of brick and mortar businesses and you knew you wanted like what businesses could provide, but you didn't have any Mm -hmm. real examples of like these like scalable internet businesses. So you started like, I think like a a snowboard shop or something.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. the real deal.
0: Yeah. And that's cool. But like not that many people who are in this sort of brick and mortar business world, like leapfrog out of that into the tech world. And you did. And then I think that's where I kind of, you popped onto my radar because you're like a creator. You're like, I've got a newsletter, multiple podcasts, a community, a blog, my Twitter account. Like you're just putting out content constantly and doing that for years. And I'm like, okay, this is who Justin is. Like that's cool. And then like sort of leapt out of that and made another transition into like, okay, now you have the successful SaaS business that's grown to at least a million dollars in revenue and you're crushing it with that. So it's like there's multiple leaps you've made out of this, you know, some smaller pond before. And now you're at this place where you've got the successful SaaS business. And it's like, where do you leap to from here? And maybe the answer is nowhere. Like, maybe the answer is like, oh, this is good. Now I'm just going to focus on other parts of my life.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, this is what uh, I've I've been challenged on this before, especially when John and I were talking about building Transistor. And uh, we had a bunch of listeners who were asking us, what is your enough number? Mm-hmm. And at the time, I think it was even difficult to answer that. Like, what do you mean enough? Like, of course, we're just going to keep growing, even if it's slowly. Like, we we knew we wanted it to be gradual and sustainable. And, you know, we have this list of values on our um, GitHub. It's, it's public. But we ask ourselves these questions like, you know, if we make this decision, is it going to make us like working on Transistor more in six months or not like it as much? Uh, Does this decision give us uh, more margin or does it take away margin out of our life, you know, Mm -hmm. space, breathing room? Uh, A lot of it has to do with like, is this going to be an enjoyable company? Is this going to be an enjoyable thing to do if we make these decisions? And it's helped us avoid a lot of complexity. We, We decided to not go the venture capital route because it just felt like oh, that would just add too much weight and expectation on mm-hmm. us. Uh, and so we self-funded. It, there was difficulty in that, but once you uh, make it over the the initial hurdle of like getting right. to a, you know a, a baseline of MRR, if you're able to self-fund and get there and survive, uh, and you still have pretty good growth, I mean that's it is a great yeah. place to be.
0: There's a point where things, I think flip where later in your business, when you're successful, you're making hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, you're like, like you've made it to where you initially wanted to go. I think yeah. it is really easy to make these decisions about, that prioritize like your quality of life. Like what feels good to me? What's gonna make me happy, et cetera, because the other stuff is taken care of. And I think mm-hmm. before that, it is tempting to, to make a lot of decisions based on that, but not always helpful. Like I see a lot of founders who are just getting started, and they quit their jobs, and they're working for themselves, and they're like, I'm only working three days a week, and I hate marketing, so I'm not going to do anything for marketing. And it's like all these decisions yeah. that are like feel good, but it's like you haven't built a sustainable business yet, so you might have to kind of do some work you don't like to get there. And later on, like you can kind of cut it out, like with Indie Hackers, like I do a lot of stuff that I like, and I've cut out a lot of stuff that I probably should do that I don't like. But it's only because Indie Hackers is big and successful enough that like I can do that now, and I could not have done yeah. that in the early days.
1: It's it's kind of frustrating when you're in the beginning stages, because it 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 can feel like it's all or nothing. Like when you're struggling, like all those years, I, I, I call it the years in the wilderness, like all those years, I was trying to build something. And in some ways, I had the freedom. I had the freedom with my time, right? I was able to kind of set my own schedule. But there was a piece that was missing, which was just like consistent revenue every month and not having that pillar kind of crumbles the whole building in a, in a way
0: it's necessary. It's the foundation.
1: Yeah. And so, but I can remember what I was trying to, like when I was in the beginning stages or the not, not there yet stage, it's so frustrating because you see people and you go, Oh wow. Like I want to get there and the gap like, the number of things that have to fall into place in order for you to have that life is, it just seems so mm-hmm. challenging. And and even with Transistor, like, it was almost like we just crossed this invisible line. And then, like, a few months later, I just felt better. <laughs> and, and then I've just felt better and more secure mm-hmm. every month since then.
0: So it hasn't gone away. You haven't acclimated to feeling like you've made it.
1: I've acclimatized to it in the sense that I feel way more secure and way more at peace. The one thing I sometimes intuit from other founders, like even like whatever the whatever class of SaaS founder I was in, mm-hmm. um, there's a handful of those founders that seem to be more stressed out now than they were when we started. And... From what I can tell, it's because they've had to have bigger teams. Like bigger teams seem to be uh, associated with more stress, especially if you're not the kind of founder that wants to lead a big team. Um, Some of them, more like more popularity and visibility has really been stressful. And... Uh, for some, the just the dynamics of the business get more and more complicated, like you have to right. sign more enterprise deals. And right. those, are, by their very nature, just uh, in my mind, they they can ruin a person. <laughs> like it's just yeah. all that additional craft. And I've, I do feel lucky in that for whatever reason, and I'm not sure if it was because we were intentional about it at the beginning, It probably has a lot to do with the market we're in. It probably has a lot to do with the product that we built and the customers we serve. But one thing that has been kind of consistent, once we crossed that line of whatever it was, 25K MRR, um, once we crossed that line, and definitely once we crossed $50,000, it's just felt more and more secure, more simplicity in life and and less stress in a lot of ways. Like there's just, there's not much that really stresses us out like it used to, you know?
0: sounds like you're living the dream. And when I think about why indie hackers do what they do, it's almost always because of like a desire of like different kinds of freedom. And so there's Mm -hmm. a creative freedom. I want to work on whatever I want. And at my normal job, I have to work on what the man tells me to do. But like if I own business, I can do my own creative sort of thing. And you've obviously got that. Um, location freedom. I don't work from wherever I want. I guess lots of people have that now with COVID and work from home, but like it wasn't traditionally yeah. super common. There's Although there's
1: like- another there's another level of that, which is I was working for a startup that got acquired by an agency. Mm-hmm. And I mean, everyone was fine. It was like a fine work environment, except there was just this unwritten expectation that you'd be on Slack all the time. Ugh. And... That pressure. I mean, I remember chafing at it when I was there, but then when once I had this new life with Transistor, where it's like I don't have to be on Slack all the time, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't feel like I'm I'm chained to it. That was a huge relief. The other weird one was, I, and I maybe I'm the only one that feels this, but like having to ask my manager for vacation time always yeah. just felt like. Why, why, why do I have to <laughs> prostate myself in front of this company and, you know, uh, beg for time off? Do it, I have permission just, to go
0: live my life? It's like asking to go to the bathroom when you're in school. <laughs> it's yeah. It's a little bit demeaning.
1: Well, and, and often in Slack, it's like that. It's like, Hey guys, I'm just heading to the washroom or heading to, uh, out for lunch or whatever. Right. It's like, why do I have to tell anybody what I'm doing? Yeah. And and now there's like all these articles. It's hilarious since remote work started. There's all these articles about employees having sex uh, during the day, and it's like, why would any company care? Like, (laughs) why? why? It's it's such a weird paradigm that that a, a manager would even have the right to care or know or even think about that. Like, if as long as you're getting your work done, and you're uh, a kind co-worker and you know it, the expectations on the average worker, I don't know, sometimes they just seem very odd to me, especially when you're out of it and right. you go, oh man, that that's sure weird. like yeah,
0: yeah, it's <laughs> hard to imagine going back. And that's like yeah I mean, that's that's why you do what you do. That's why everybody who comes on this show does what they do because they don't want to have to live that life and it's really cool to have built a company that you've built and then look forward and be like, I never have to go do that ever again. And mm-hmm. so I think that's like a third kind of freedom that you're talking about, which is like temporal freedom, like time freedom. Like I want to use my time however the hell I want to without ever asking anybody's permission. And then obviously there's financial independence too, which is like kind of the holy grail, mm-hmm. which is I don't want to have to depend on someone else for my paycheck. And like you've yeah. achieved all of those. And I think one of the questions that I have for you, because you spent a lot of time, like I said earlier, as a creator, you were sort mm-hmm. of putting out a lot of content and helping people and running a community, et cetera. And, like you were making money doing that. And then you mm-hmm. transitioned into like a SaaS founder. Mm-hmm. And the question I have is like, is it even worth being a creator? Like all that time you spent doing all that other stuff. Like I think you were able to achieve a lot of that freedom, but in some ways, like you're still kind of on the hook in terms of time. You still got to put out another newsletter, another podcast episode, another whatever. Otherwise like you're done. Whereas with yeah. transistor, it doesn't, it seems like you have even more control over your time.
1: Yeah. I mean, the pressure is different for sure. Uh, like before it was like, I have to get that newsletter out every Saturday morning. I have to publish this podcast every week. I And you can see a lot of creators doing this even now. Like there's a lot of pressure to keep that weekly cadence, for example. And... What I'm realizing more and more, especially as I try to give people advice, is that my position now is just the culmination of everything that came before. And so you take any of those variables out and I don't know, Mm. even though like honestly some of those variables caused me a lot of pain. (laughs) Like Like what? uh, Just like sacrificing a lot in my personal life and maybe like you know, sacrificing too much. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to know in retrospect how much of that was necessary and how much of it wasn't necessary.
0: Uh, Same. I I often feel like I sacrificed too much in my 20s. -hmm. And I'm curious to hear why uh, you felt you did the same. For me, it was very obviously came down to the fact that I was in too much of a rush. I was like, Mm -hmm. I need to make this work next month. This year, etc., yeah. cetera, etc. Cetera. And if I had said, like, you know, it's cool if it takes me six years to build this business, I'm gonna go have fun with my friends and do this other stuff, and the same time, and it's cool if I go slow. I wouldn't yeah. have made those sacrifices, but I was so impatient, uh, and I did not think in the in, on that scale. I was thinking in months, yeah. and I was not thinking in years.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think my impatience was probably more. Uh, I was just in a real rush to become. An adult quote-unquote whatever that meant and so um, you know I got a full-time I I went right to university I got a full-time job right away I moved out Mm -hmm. of my parents house right away I didn't go traveling I got married pretty young I had kids pretty young Um, and that I think in retrospect I think that was a mistake although again maybe this is just built into me and there's just no way I could have avoided it. But I think there is something about allowing people to explore whatever stage of life they're at. There's like appropriate levels of exploration. You've talked about this a lot actually. And I I just finished range that book by David Epstein and um, it took me like two years to read it, but it's great. It's a really great book. And, I just found myself agreeing a lot with his thesis, which is we've we made specialization in our culture, uh, religion, and you know, now a lot of parents, you know, they wanna get their kid, you know, in Canada. It's like we want to get our kids playing hockey by three years mm. old and so that they can maybe have a chance to get into the NHL. And there is this other path, which is allowing kids and people in their 20s and people in their 30s and 40s to explore at kind of an appropriate in an appropriate way Mm -hmm. at that stage of life and not be in such a rush to you know start that business or whatever and I think it can still result in you know like when I look at Nathan Barry as he's someone that achieved a lot in his 20s but there's just a lot of exploration in there as well and i think that served them really well uh as opposed to you know i really locked in in my 20s uh and then spent my entire 20s just doing one thing right and didn't even get into tech until uh basically my 30s that it's also one reason even though i'm a i'm a huge crypto I'm a huge skeptic, crypto critic, (laughs) I I would say, (laughs) but I'm the, the one thing I'm trying to temper myself on is just that, that unbridled youthful enthusiasm and idealism Mm -hmm. that so many of these kids who are 18, 19, 20, you know, in their twenties, I don't want to, I don't want to shit on it too much, you know, because it's just like, there's something about that idealism that is so fun to explore when you're young. I think there still needs to be a tension and one thing that concerns me is when I was you know in my early 20s I went to university and for a long time I thought well that was a waste of time but I've kept coming back to these business ethics classes I took in university and The one thing that academia I think was good at was giving us this tension that kind of balanced out that idealism. So, okay, sure, you want to go do this, but let's pull on the other side of that in a way that makes you uncomfortable and makes you have to uh, rethink your baseline assumptions. Right. And it feels like, our our tech culture especially is missing that there's no one to kind of hold the balance uh, because everybody's self-teaching themselves everybody's you know getting hired when they're super young everyone's making all this money and there's not a lot of people saying whoa just hold up
0: well i think there are but they get drowned out because i do see a lot of skepticism and criticism in the tech industry i think it comes from a lot, of, um, a lot of us in particular, like mm-hmm. bootstrapper sort of sphere tends to criticize what like the high growth VC funded startup sphere does quite often. Yeah, And sometimes those criticisms are very prescient and pan out, but there's no sort of like pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. Like nothing really, like the companies that are criticized just fail and like a few hundred people say, I told you so, and that's it. <laughs> and yeah. then sometimes like there's like criticism and like it's goes ignored and nothing like it's just wrong. Or it just it gets overpowered by the idealism and the enthusiasm. So with like the crypto blockchain space, like there's been critics for the last ten years and it's only gotten yeah. louder and bigger and more popular and spread even further to the point where like somebody like me, like I've also been kind of a crypto skeptic. Um, I'm now like, Okay, <laughs> at this point is it irresponsible? am I just like an old man shaking his fist at the sky, not learning this stuff? Like am I missing something? Like, how can something be this sustained for so long by so many Intelligent people and not have like a there there. Yeah. So like in the last few weeks, I've been looking into it. I'm curious, like you mentioned the ethics, business ethics. Like, is there um, something that you find unethical about it? Is it? it, Should we not be doing this stuff?
1: I think a lot of people in tech evaluate things on whether they are technically possible or uh, financially beneficial. So those are two uh, planes that you can evaluate things on. But there's a whole other Uh, underlying layer which is how morally good how ethically good and how structurally good for society Mm -hmm. is a given thing and so when you're suggesting something that could be a really radical change without considering all the underlying implications of what Mm -hmm. you're presenting so one example would be I remember when Uber came out and as a kind of you know i'm in my early 30s and as a newly minted you know tech utopian believer i was just when i saw the the taxi cab drivers protesting i just thought you know you luddites like you why even protest this this is going to happen it's an inevitable and the the role of people in society is just to conform to this technical Inevitability, And now looking back on that, I'm like, like that. There's, I think those societal considerations are exactly the things we should be wrestling with um, before we go too far down a road. And um, maybe we were a little too, like in Uber's case as I've reflected on it, maybe we were a little bit too eager to have this new paradigm and to get rid of the old one without considering all the things that might happen. And the the shakeout of even that, of, you know, if tech comp- continues to displace huge segments of the population, eventually there's going to be repercussions for that. And, you know, you could argue that there's a lot of the political instability we have in the world is a result of that. A lot of the anger that there is at, is a result of that. Um, a lot of the skepticism about science is a result of that. And so I'm, I'm kind of worried about these underlying tectonic plates as they keep shifting. And sometimes you don't realize what you've done until later. It's like, it's also, I, I don't know if this is a good metaphor, but it's the uh, Saddam Hussein problem, which is you think by going in and removing Saddam Hussein from Iraq, all the problems are going to disappear. But instead you just create a whole new mess of problems, you know, like, oh, here's a simple solution. We just remove this dictator and now everything's fine. And it turns out that that, <laughs> that the world's not that simple and maybe sometimes we need to be more careful about the things we put in motion. And so that's my underlying concern about crypto is that I can see the fun side of it. I can see the idealistic side of it. The, the rhetoric as a former kind of religious person, the rhetoric really worries me. It like (laughs) triggers old memories of being in a religion and, uh, I
0: <laughs> there's a hardcore believer aspect to it. There's a lot of faith that goes into uh, sort of this crypto optimism.
1: There's a hardcore preacher element to it as well, which mm. is there's a lot of preachers out there. and that that kind of noise, like that, that it, as soon as we move away from being rational actors or as, as rational as we can be, and we mo- <laughs> we move to this like, cult like people jumping on the train, people coming up with honestly, to me, it just sounds like ridiculous rhetoric. Like like the the, the ideas of displacing an entire worldwide economic system, even in the manner of a decade, feels profoundly dangerous to me. <laughs> and then there's deeper ecological considerations and yep. And I know none of this stuff is fun to talk about.
0: no it's super fun to talk about
1: but but uh and I also realize there's a balance like part of me just does want to let the especially younger people who are excited about it go and explore it but we got to be careful about what we set in motion
0: yeah and I'm I'm um, kind of by uh, like by my nature I'm an optimist I kind of just tend to think that things will work out which in many cases is naive um. So some things don't work out. But I think that when it comes to, like, technological innovation, uh, there's a quote that I, I really love, which is, when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. Mm-hmm. And it has always been true since the dawn of time that when we create new things as a society, um, there's a lot of negative side effects that we might mm-hmm. not have anticipated that throw things into turmoil. And I think the thing that gives me faith and optimism is that, like, Nobody really wants the negative side effects. The haters don't want it. The believers don't want it. Nobody wants it. And so when we create these new inventions, whether it's television, whether it's social media, whether it's crypto, whether it's nuclear weapons, um, there is almost always a scary period where it's just really bad, (laughs) Mm -hmm. followed by like a usually pretty massive worldwide effort to fix the bad things, to plug the leaks. And I think I... I. I have a sort of faith that like these problems will be addressed. They are very Mm -hmm. real problems. They should not be ignored. But there are a lot of people like you who are like, this sucks. You know, like the ecological impact of crypto, uh, the energy usage is ridiculously wasteful. And like many tens of thousands of people working to fix that problem. And it's hard to imagine a world 10 years from now where like that problem isn't addressed. And sometimes it might be too late. And like, you're right, we have to be careful. But I have like a sort of... Uh, An optimism that like we won't ignore this. Like nobody wants to live in a dystopian society, which is why I don't think we'll ever have a dystopian society because people don't want it. Like
1: yeah, no one, like it, we
0: just we 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 will fix that stuff.
1: Except except that I, I've been thinking a lot about this Adam Grant quote, which is like something: think like a scientist, not like a preacher. And I think it's just really easy in our society to think like a preacher, like Elon, whether he likes it or not. He is a religious-like figure to millions of people. And even you can think you're a rational actor when you, are the, when you are the figurehead of something like that. You can think, oh, no, I've got lots of fans and lots of people who follow me, but I'm still a rational person. But in practice, it is just, it's just so difficult to remain uh, rational when you've got that kind of attention. And I think the, the best example of this is just, like, the abuses of of religion, the abuses of politics. You know, once people get into the, – once they have that kind of attention or power, it can be dangerous.
0: <laughs> yeah. There's another quote that I like that is relevant to this. It's from Nietzsche. It says, when madness is rare in individuals, but in groups, parties, nations, and ages, it's the rule. And when I look mm. at someone like the crazes – where you have lots and lots of people saying things, like sometimes it's hard to determine, like, is there truth behind this? Or do we all just feel comfortable pushing this narrative because everyone else is doing it and this many people can't be wrong? And so, like, me diving into crypto, for example, I've been doing some research because I want to do some episodes on it. A lot of what I'm trying to figure out is, like, okay, how much of this is just, like, fanatical religious belief that this is how the world should be, so therefore this is good? How much Mm -hmm. of this is people just trying to actually profit (laughs) and make a quick buck? Because that's clearly Mm -hmm. a lot of it. And then, Mm -hmm. like if I can get beneath the surface of those two sort of facades, like what's the actual core utility? Like that's what I've been trying to figure out. But it's hard because like madness is the rule in groups and there's a huge thick layer of people who are sort of crazy. (laughs) Like you can go back to any age and you're going to find like some sort of demagogue, some sort of extremely charismatic leader who might not be saying responsible or rational things, but they've got that energy and the tide just goes with them. Whether it's like a small tribe of people, whether it's something like the Roman Empire and you've got this charismatic, it just, it just kind of happens. And it's been yeah. weird to see the internet transform into a place that supports that online, where there mm-hmm. are always like these little status, mo- this person has 6 million followers, listen to them. Uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, like on Twitter, like, okay, this. Like, if you say something against this particular idea or movement, you're going to get mobbed by a bunch of fanatics who are all on the same side I think has turned the internet into like a simulacrum of what kind of already happens in real life, which is not shocking or surprising. And I don't know if there's a way to, like, like, in a way it's like, can we fight against human nature? Like we are not robots. You know, we're not programmed to listen to the most logical argument. Like we are programmed to look at the person who's saying it and say like, do I like this person? How do they make me feel? And what does everybody else think? Like these are kind of the, the things that are the undercurrent of our decision making sometimes.
1: I think one way to battle it especially like if we return to the idea of business so like indie hackers trying to do their own thing if I could give people advice it would be maybe focus less on the the heroes like the the people that you see that have made it and focus more on building relationships with peers. Relationships with peers is ultimately, I think, what ended up being the most helpful for me. So Adam Wathen and Taylor Otwell, in particular, kind of opening up their bank statements to me and showing me what kind of money they were making and, uh-huh. and um, giving me these insights. Taylor Otwell invited me to, to speak at a Laracon and just seeing how many people were there that were passionate about Laravel that became kind of the the clues and the seeds to something I repeat a lot, which is the market will determine most of your growth. Once I, once I saw the PHP developer market and how Taylor had served that market, uh, that became the inspiration. And even though they were ahead of me, you know, I really felt like Adam and Taylor were my friends and they were my peers. Mm. They weren't like Jason Fried or you know, all these other people I had kind of idolized right. before, they were my level and we could message each other back and forth on Telegram all the time. And you know, and then building a company with with John Buddha, you know, that was another kind of advantage was like he's really my peer. And uh <laughs> and in some ways, like starting with somebody like that who Also kind of felt like an old guy in tech. Also kind of felt like, well, you know, we've been working for people for a while. We've both tried doing our own thing on our own. That equality, I think, was helpful. And neither of us had uh, kind of more power over each other. It was like this meeting each other where we're at and then moving forward together.
0: It's such a tricky balance, though, because I like I remember like five, six years ago, like, trying to start companies, really struggling, and, like, looking at some of the reasons why I failed, and, like, they weren't really that novel. They weren't, like, Mm. that special. Like, they were kind of things that, like, I had read before, like, don't do this, (laughs) and Mm. then I just did it anyway, you know? And, like, there's this sort of struggle where, like, some mistakes you kind of have to make on your own to learn from them. Even Mm -hmm. if you have, like, the Jason Cohens of the world telling you, like, don't do this, don't do this, do this, it's hard yeah. to internalize it. And I think, like, you know, to be to be a better founder, I think sometimes means being better at learning from other people's mistakes rather than having to make them yourself. Which would be the yes. argument for, like, looking to what these people have to say who come before you and saying, okay, like, I may not have no experience. And it may seem so intuitive in my bones that, like, I'm just going to build a product and people are going to find it and I don't need to do any marketing. <laughs> it feels mm-hmm. so intuitive. but Like, I keep hearing that I need to do marketing. And so, like, I'm going to ignore my own intuition and do what these people say because I trust them. And yeah. I've seen... Fledgling founders do that and do really well. And I've been the person who ignored that advice and suffered for it and needed to like, to suffer, I needed to touch the hot stove myself. Mm -hmm. And so I I, I find myself, like, I hear you that like we shouldn't put people on too high of a pedestal, but I also see so many cases of people struggling where they're struggling in ways that like are preventable. And others have told them how to avoid that.
1: Yeah. The difference is, is that by the time I started, I was in my early 30s and I already had four kids. And that dynamic does affect things and it does make it harder. You know, Ben Ornstein and I had this, I think it was on Twitter Spaces or something. I was like reacting emotionally to one of his tweets, which was something to the effect of like, after a while, the the money's not a real motivator or I've heard it I don't think it was him, but I think it was Pomp or somebody that said, uh, real founders aren't motivated by money. And for me, like growing up and trying to provide for a family, that's always just seemed like bullshit to me. Like a big reason, a big motivator was the money.
0: Right. I've been um, wrestling with this idea of kids because I'm 34. I don't have kids. I'm not really Mm -hmm. on a path to having kids anytime soon, but I've been thinking a lot about it. So it's like mm-hmm. fun for me to talk to people like you, like you had kids super young. You yeah. at the point where you have a business making millions of dollars and your kids are at the age where I think they're like graduating high school and stuff, which is kind of the dream because now you have the rest of your life ahead of you. But like, how did you juggle that? Like, how did you make it work?
1: I, I'm not even sure how much my experience is like instructive in the sense, you know, because <laughs> we had kids pretty early. And I also think this might seem weird to say no, I I just want to say like, I adore my kids. I love them. Forever and ever and ever, I could not imagine life without them, but I could imagine a life where I didn't have kids. Um, I'm not sure if that's clear, but I think it's okay for me to admit that, like, you know what, that w- that could have been a fine possibility. I don't know how my life would have turned out different, but I don't think everybody should. And, you know, growing up, there was a lot of cultural expectation, especially in church, that you would have kids and have kids young. Uh, and I think that's unhealthy. And so, unfortunately, I had that. And so, um, having kids young is difficult, especially in today's uh, culture. And having kids before you've got some sort of financial stability is tough. It just it, it just puts you so far behind. There are opposite problems that I can imagine, which is having too much money when you have kids might also present problems i i haven't had to deal with that as much because (laughs) you know my kids mostly grew up when we were you know we were paying our bills but it was Mm. it was work
0: how old is Um, your youngest kid
1: my youngest is 12 and so i have 12 year old boy 13 year old boy 16 year old boy and my daughter's night turning 19 so there's We're just in a different stage now, too.
0: Do you feel like having money has changed, like your relationship with your kids or your relationship with being a father?
1: When you're kind of always in that stressed out mode of, uh, okay, I got to pay this credit card. I've got to, oh, the kids need braces. uh, You know, when you're always having to think about that stuff, you flail a lot more. And so that part was hard. Now I'm definitely more calm. I think it's helped me to be more present, but it does present its own problems. Like now all of a sudden there is money. And so as a parent, you're always like, I don't want to give my kids everything. I want them to have to experience some of this. So there's a challenge to it. I, I will say that I think for people who want children, I think, I think kids are a, a part of life that can just add a lot to your life. Even though a lot of it's a struggle, I've basically signed up for being concerned about my kids for the rest of my life. Like, I just think about them all the time. Right now, I'm thinking about like, what kinds of jobs are they going to be able to get? Are they ever going to be able to own their own home? Those kinds of anxieties, I don't think those ever go away. That's a weight I didn't consider before I had kids that now I'm like, wow, like that's a thing that... You really have to consider that you're going to be concerned about them.
0: Okay, so here's my thinking on kids. Mm-hmm. I think there's kind of like maybe two or two different things we sort of aim for in life. One is like the sort of hedonistic category, like things that we do for ourselves. So, like, I want to make more money. I want to have a great, you know, partnership with a partner. I want to have amazing friends. I want to be comfortable and pl- like happy. And like, those are all mm-hmm. things for ourselves. And those are totally fine and totally great, but they're definitely hedonistic, they just make us yeah. happier. And then there are occasions where we do things that like aren't for ourselves or like, you know, you pick up a piece of litter off the street is a you know, contrived example, but like having kids, spend a lot of yeah. time doing things for your kids. You're like, I'm never going to get paid back for this. I'm yeah. just doing this to help this other person or, yeah. you know, working for a nonprofit or all sorts of different things you can do. Where like, I think once you realize like, Hey, this isn't even for me, this is for other people, it creates a, like this sense of meaning and purpose. Where yeah. I think we think about like, hey, this might not be for me, but it's still good because it's something that like, I, it's bigger than me. And I think yes. that like, as we get older, I try to talk to a lot of older people to find out what they care about. They spend mm-hmm. a lot more time looking back on the past and constructing a story of their life and like prioritizing what was meaningful in their mm-hmm. life. And I think the kids are like kind of a shortcut to have meaning because like what is more selfless than helping a bunch of other people live when they can't take care of themselves? And what is what could be yeah. bigger than you then like you know creating this legacy that's going to live on after you die i think it gives you this sense of meaning and that without kids it's hard to find i think you have to be mm-hmm. very deliberate about how to get that sense so i wonder as like a father do you feel like you have that sense of meaning having had kids
1: oh yeah yeah it's i mean i don't know if i would call it a shortcut cuz it's just so challenging but yeah. in terms of meaning i like i don't know if i would be as concerned about the climate crisis if i didn't have kids i don't know if i'd be concerned about ethical issues i don't know if i'd be concerned like i i it, there there is something about it that raises your awareness maybe i'd still mm. be concerned but my my awareness about all that stuff is raised because i'm like man like what kind of world are they going to have
0: they're instantly a much more caring person
1: and 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 just practically day by day What you have to give up for kids is like there's no, there's really, I I mean, there's other kinds of dependence I think you could have that would have a similar effect, but it is, you're giving them everything and it's a huge, huge sacrifice. And there's something about that that is really healthy and is challenging to get in other areas of life. And there's lots of fun too. I mean, there's just some like it, it makes life feel like this is worth living. Even when things get hard, like look at this family we have. And the, the more we invest in this and the more we, you know, sustain this, we can just see like the, the end result of that is, you know, these healthy lives and these healthy futures and this strong connection that everybody has together. And, that is yeah that that whole thing is incredible
0: how do you um think about like the future of transistor because it's like okay you have kids there's this idea that you could like pass your business on to your family and create some sort of legacy which is like nothing that's ever crossed my mind because i don't have Mm -hmm. kids um there's an idea that you you know just keep growing transistor you do what jason cohen said continue growing Mm -hmm. your businesses because that's what businesses do there's a chance that you, you become a mm-hmm. crypto founder and hop over to Web3. I highly doubt it would be that. Like how do you yeah. how are you in your mind trying to figure out like what the future holds? Because now you're pretty mm-hmm. financially stable. Like it's like it's a completely mm-hmm. different equation.
1: Yeah, I mean I think about whether we're gonna be able to sell transistor quite a bit. Not that I want to, but really the best outcome for my family would be for there eventually to be a lump sum that that they could access. I'm conflicted about this. So when I'm being selfish about my family, I think that the best outcome is for me to make quite a bit of money and then uh, for the family to have that. Maybe not in the billions or even hundreds of millions, but for uh, a family in this day and age to have millions of dollars to access once I'm gone, there's a lot of benefits to that. And there is probably, just like you don't want to be too popular or too famous, there is probably a, a threshold rich. there. But there's also a threshold on the other side, which is you know, not having any sort of generational inheritance. This is what I'm conflicted about. It's because in one sense, this kind of generational inheritance is creating uh, huge rifts in society where there's a group of people that just continue continue to get shut out of this intergenerational wealth pattern. But then just like, honestly, like there's this other part of me that's just like, oh man, I just want to make sure my kids are okay.
0: Yeah, it's your family.
1: <laughs> and, and and I'm really wrestling with
0: that. I remember being a kid and it was like very encouraging to me that my parents weren't like mega successful. Like it gave me more room to like make a name for myself and do what I wanted to do. And I think it was easier for my parents to be proud of me too, because I was like sort of leapfrogging them. And so there is, like, a, like I, I do wonder, like, if my parents had been, like, super rich and successful or famous or whatever, if I would have had any fire, because I have lots of friends like that. Like, I know a lot of people who, like, their parents are crazy successful, and they run the gamut from, like, they don't care, they're still going to do their own thing, to, like, feeling, like, this ennui of, like, what's the point of even striving? Like, I already have all this stuff.
1: Yeah. I push back on that, though, too, though, because I know lots of people who grew up in not great situations, and they're... The, the the same characteristics are visible on both sides of the coin. Yep. So it, it, it's sometimes difficult to again like know empirically what's going to be best yeah. for my kids. I I do think it was there was healthy parts of them. Uh, before transistor, we when we moved to this town, we lived in a twelve hundred square foot house with six people, and so a small house, and then. After Transistor made money, we moved to a bigger house. And I think there's something about that that uh, transition that was healthy, meaning we know we can always go back to the small house because we knew we lived there. But we also know like the big house is nice, and we appreciate it. And in many ways, it is better.
0: It's also cool that your kids could see that you were able to do something and make a transition. Like I think it's... Like there was never mm-hmm. any sort of transition like that in my childhood. It was kind of like, this is how much money my parents make. This is just it. Like I never, yeah. my mom was always very entrepreneurial, but I didn't, there wasn't a like, huge step change of like, we made it. And I think yeah. it's kind of like, I can imagine it'd be kind of cool to, like, to, to have a, a father in your life who like has like struggled and I don't know how much your kids are aware of like your entrepreneurial journey, but who can see mm-hmm. you work hard at something and then succeed. And then it's kind of like prove positive, like you can change yeah. sort of your fortune.
1: Yeah. I think I've tried to be pretty open about that. Telling my kids like, hey, I went to therapy today. That's a pretty common conversation. Um, When I can, I try to reveal the things I'm struggling with. When I have a breakthrough in therapy that feels appropriate to communicate, I like to share those things too. (laughs) Cool. Um, And so I um, I think there is something healthy about about all of that. And there's also just this other possibility, which is, I think, entrepreneurship and bootstrapping and the the new American dream, as Tyler Trangus calls it, of having a successful SaaS. I think that's all worth pursuing, but clearly it's not going to be enough for everybody. And I wonder in the future, if if I had enough resources, would that free me up to uh, exploring some of those bigger shifts of like, what can we do for the rest of the world, the rest of society? What can we do to, you know, just having Transistor has allowed me to, <laughs> in some ways to criticize Jeff Bezos and a lot of other people. And some people might debate whether <laughs> that's helpful or not. But th- I think having the freedom to try to invest in other things, that are good for, maybe good for society. There's something about that. Although I'm a little bit conflicted about that too, because I don't want to become just another rich guy that thinks he has all the answers for society.
0: <laughs> so not, not everybody's in your position where they have built this company that is successful and where they can think about how to use their resources. Uh, I know you're big on like the importance of picking a market. You know, I know, uh, and I'm big on this too. I think it's very easy as, like, sort of a fledgling founder to be like, how do I get to where Justin is? And Mm -hmm. then completely whiff. Like, just make hugely wrong decisions up front that sort of cap your growth potential. Like, you had a a tweet actually where you sort of pointed out how stark this can be and how important it is to pick the right market. You're talking about how you were in the podcast hosting market. Mm -hmm. I don't know who, I think it was, like, Libsyn or someone that you pointed out. Like, Libsyn is one of the biggest companies, and they make $25 million a year. Mm -hmm. And, uh... ConvertKit, meanwhile, is like one of the smaller players in the email marketing space and they make like $29 million a year. (laughs) So it's kind of just like choosing the right market, you automatically have chosen like how much your revenue can grow and how fast you can grow. And I think this is something that people like overlook a lot. Like your story earlier about going to speak at um, uh, Laracon and seeing how many people were there and actually feeling like, oh, this is a big market full of excited people. But on the internet, like it's sometimes we're divorced from that. Like you're building something, and you, we can't really see. Like how many people out there even want what I'm doing? Yeah, I I guess my question for you is like, how do you think that a fledgling founder should think about this when they're like, what kind of startup should I build in the first place?
1: Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I'm dealing with this right now because I've invested some money in Josh Anderton and this new product, Meeps, which is a way of building an online membership or community site. So the idea is it would replace Patreon, Memberful, Mailchimp, all this other stuff. And <laughs> you know, this is kind of the thing we're evaluating right now is is there enough momentum here? So the the size of I'm not always saying you have to go for a big market. The size of the market will determine kind of your ceiling. So for any of the saster people to say well everybody should be trying to build a 100 million dollar ar business i know in podcasting it's just probably not possible because the biggest player is doing 25 million and and like the idea that we would suddenly be able to <laughs> reach that is just not practical uh, i think convertkit could get to 100 million because the ceiling of that market is just so much higher uh, the momentum in that market every single day. There's just millions and millions of people who need to send email, and they that that can only grow. Really, like that's uh, I I don't think uh, that's going to slow down. So determining kind of what the ceiling is, and then if for John and I, we knew that podcasting wasn't going to make us billionaires, but the ceiling was like, but you know, if we could do a couple million dollars a year in revenue, that would be. Amazing.
0: Awesome. Yeah.
1: Uh, and so this market's fine for us.
0: Do you think that picking a bigger market would make it faster to go from zero to a couple million?
1: It, it depends on the turnover of dollars. So how when I talk about momentum, it's like how many people every single day are waking up and either saying, I'm going to buy this or I'm going to switch from something else to this. The more of those fish that are swimming in the river, the more chance you could catch them. And with Meep's, that's one question we're asking is, you know, a lot of people are talking about the creator economy, uh, community building is really big now, both for indie makers, but also for companies. And so we saw some evidence that there was maybe a lot of fish, and now we're trying to figure out how much is there. And it's we still don't know. That's part of the thing about companies, like you're kind of feeling it out. So, I mean, at least 20, 30 people in early access, maybe more. And that's good. That's a good sign. But if we keep catching fish at this rate, and if it's if it's this hard to catch fish each time, I think it will not be a good market. And so, practically, what does that mean? We're trying things, like going out, and we've we've got we built a waiting list of, you know, eight hundred people or something. That's a good sign. Transistor had something similar. The difference I would say is that the fish bite faster with podcast hosting. It was just like, so every time I sent an email to the waiting list said, hey, we're opening up 10 new spots for early access. I got a bite, got a bite, got a bite. And with Meeps, I haven't experienced that yet.
0: Well, it seems like podcast hosting is like, I don't want to say it's boring, but it's just like so easy to understand. mm -hmm. It's like, I have a podcast. I need a host. It is really simple. Upload my MP3s. You guys it for me. With something like Meeps or like anything that's writing like a really new trend, Mm -hmm. it's kind of harder to wrap your mind around. It's like, okay, I know I want to be a creator on the internet, but like, do I need a community? Why do I need a community? What does that look like? What does that mean to have a community? It's like, I would imagine much harder even if you need this to know that you need it and to know like what to search for or how you're going to use it.
1: Yeah, and I think about thresholds a lot, and then the possible benefit. So. What I mean by thresholds is stuff like how hard is it to find a customer, but also how quickly does a customer make a decision? I remember being in the project management software space, and it's just like I had to convince people. It took forever to convince people to buy. (laughs) It's like, I got to talk to my dev manager. And then it's like, oh, can you guys do a Zoom call? And I'm like, this is a $49 product. Like, If this is how hard it is to catch fish, we can't be in this market. It's just too much. Also in terms of like time to buy. So by the time somebody searches best podcasting host, they're basically ready to buy. And if you look at our funnel for Transistor, it's like um, we get hundreds of trials every month and then basically of those trials, like 75% convert to paid. It's a very short funnel, I would say. Yeah. we don't have to do a lot of education. We don't have to do a lot of massaging. It's just like, here it is. And people are already like, yeah, I want this. And also the threshold to success is relatively low. Like all they really need to do is upload one episode and they feel satisfied. So yeah, with a product like Meeps, we'll have to see if we can get there. And there might be ways of maneuvering around it and there might be ways of getting it. I think If it takes too long, uh, my advice to Josh will be to maybe sell it. Now there's a market for for indie SaaS apps and then probably try something else.
0: And it's super easy to overlook that when you're deciding what to do. Because I think like we as founders tend to be like action, biased towards action, which means we look at the things that we can do. You know, we can build this feature. We can send this email. We can advertise over here. We can do all these things, but it's like, you can't create a market where there isn't one. And so we tend to ignore that. But it's like, that's super important. I remember even starting Hackers. I was working on this other app beforehand that was kind of like a to-do list app. And I just found it so hard to get customers and so hard to retain them. Like I was literally emailing people like, don't you want to be productive? And people did, but it was just like a lot of effort and they just weren't doing it. And then I saw a couple stories of other apps that just grew really quickly. I'm like, man, I'm at a few thousand dollars in revenue. I'm grinding. And then someone's like, I launched, you know, two months ago and I'm at 10K in revenue. I'm like, okay. I saw that first story. It's a little discouraging, but I'm like, I'll get there. Then I saw another one and I'm like, I'm done. (laughs) I don't want to grind this out. I don't want to take years and years to grow. Like I want to build something in a market that has a lot of momentum and a lot of excitement. And like that was Andy Hackers. And it was a thousand times easier to grow when there was a ton of people who were already eating the stuff up and like who were really interested in it. And it's like, it's kind of crazy because like when people talk about the stories of how they succeeded, they're rarely like, I picked the right market. You know, we tend to focus on the, all the things that we did. I did this, I did that, I did this. But it's like, ah, you also picked like a really good market and people who don't can do three times more work than you, three times better than you. But like the excitement, that motivation, like there just aren't that many people who want to solve that problem that you're solving. And it's interesting because it's like, there's so many examples of people I bought on the podcast. I mean, yourself, Transistor Group, super rapidly i mean you were doing a million in revenue after like i think a couple years after your launch before that mm-hmm. um yeah. riverside fm podcast recording tool using to record this These two brothers like messaged me about like oh try our new tool like february of last year they're already pushing like a million in revenue a year later or like i talked to saba the founder of v like a video editing tool january 2020 they're making like 150k a year in revenue feeling pretty good you know you can pay an engineer with that uh, a year later three and a half million dollars in revenue, like just astronomical growth. And it's like, those are all very talented founders, but they're not like a hundred times more talented than other people who are growing a hundred times slower. And,
1: but also a good example of you really, because the founders of Riverside, they emailed me too, they were clearly hustling. And so there is a baseline of effort you have to put in You temper that with, okay, but in a year, let's see if all of that effort has produced anything that's kind of riding its own momentum. And if it's not, this is why I think a lot of freelancing is difficult because you put in this a ton of effort to get the client, to then do the work for the client, to go through all the revisions, and then you got to start up again the next month and do it again. That's kind of like the opposite feeling that you want in software.
0: I've got like a little sanity check checklist for myself. If I ever start another startup, I'm gonna make sure it checks as many of these boxes as possible. And these are all like the market that I'm in or as I like to call like the problem that I'm solving. Like what are the characteristics of that problem? Uh, and like I, let me try to like go through my checklist and apply it to transistor. Oh yeah. So the first okay. one is like the problem is shared by lots of people. In other words, you're in a big market. Mm-hmm. Obviously, lots of people are starting podcasts. There are millions of podcasts. Um, and a lot of them are new. And so, like, there are people who don't have a podcast player yet. So, like, you check that box pretty easily. It might be harder to determine with something like Meeps how many people want to start a community, et cetera. But the podcast stats are there. The problem is growing, which means, okay, even if it's big, is it growing or shrinking? Um, you know, there are a lot of people who publish newspapers where that problem is shrinking. <laughs> fewer and fewer people are publishing newspapers. But if the problem is growing every year, then you see that, okay, this is something you want to solve because that sets the stage for you to grow without having to do anything. You're writing a wave that's getting bigger instead of writing a wave that's getting smaller. So that's something you can check. Is it a problem that is uh, necessary to have solved? Is this like an optional thing? Like people can just go without it or is it required? If you want a podcast, guess what? You have to host it. There's no, none of your market is like, you know what? I just won't get a podcast host. There are a lot of people who want to get things done who are like, you know what? I'm not going to use a to-do list app. And that was not good for me. yeah trying to do that, <laughs> it's really easy for them to just say i don't need any of this um the problem is urgent so when you need it like can you wait or do you need to get it immediately podcast hosting easy it's urgent if you want to start a podcast tomorrow you need a host tomorrow is the problem experienced by people that you like so this one's kind of optional <laughs> uh i like doing this though because i want to work with customers who i like yes you like podcasting you've been podcasting forever you have multiple podcasts you understand podcasters and so it's not going to be like you go home to work every day dealing with people you don't understand you don't like you don't care about yeah Uh, and it's honestly
1: why i probably even though maybe we could move into more enterprise customers i probably just won't because right every time i've I've dabbled in it. It hasn't been enjoyable. <laughs> right. It's reduced, it's reduced my life enjoyment by quite a bit, but there's some people that love that stuff. Like I think Jordan Gall, uh, I think he would probably, maybe he gets fired up about that stuff. Um And so what he's doing with rally, that's a great fit for him. But for me, <laughs> I just, I don't really get fired up about it.
0: Right. Yeah. Another one on here, I think is really important is the problem needs to be valuable for people to solve it. Meaning, people need to be willing to pay money to solve it. Um, this one, I think, gets a lot of indie hackers where they're like, "Ah, no one's gonna buy my thing that costs a hundred hundred bucks a month. Like, I gotta do something that costs five bucks a month." And then you're fucked <laughs> because you need yeah. thousands and thousands of customers to even get to 10k MRR, and then their customers don't care because it's something that only costs five bucks, which means it's probably not that valuable, and so they can mm-hmm. kind of take it or leave it. And so, right out of the gate, like, I would never do anything that I can't obviously sell for at least 50 bucks a month at least.
1: Although to push back on that a bit, it might still be worth running that experiment because like Transistor still makes most of our money from our $19 plan. And there's pros and cons to serving those kinds of customers, but there's just enough of them that it works. And the customer support we have to give is actually not that heavy. And so it it might be worth doing it. Some of these golden rules of like, you know, only $50 or $100, it it still might be worth trying that, you know? Like, it might be worth it just having a bunch of people who just sign up themselves at a lower price rate. So I think that's a pretty good rule of thumb, but it might be worth testing it to see, you know, if you put something out and it's it's $10 a month and instantly, like, there's thousands of people signing up and they're not asking for too much support, I would totally do that. That sounds awesome. Sure.
0: And that's the trade off. Like if you, you can't simultaneously have a product that's like a super low price, you are solving a problem that people won't pay that much for. And the market isn't that big (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it's really hard to find people. You gotta Mm -hmm. like, you gotta pick one at the very, you can't like have both of them be a zero. The last item on my checklist is that the problem is a lasting one. And this has bitten me before where I solve a problem for people they are like, fuck yeah, that's awesome. And then the problem doesn't last. Like they don't need the solution for very long and so then they're out. Hosting is like the exact opposite. Like as long as I have my podcast, I need a host. I never outgrow your solution. I never graduate, I never churn. I'm just like, I always need hosting. Every year I need a tax preparer. Every day I need food. Like some problems just never end. With indie hackers, like it's, one could say that one of the problems that I help solve is inspiring people to get started. That is a problem with a very short shelf life. You get inspired, and then you're kind of like, all right, thanks, indie hackers. I'm out. <laughs> uh, and so there's, like a lot of, there's a lot of overhead. There's a lot of uh, churn, I should say, where people come in, they get what they need. It's great. And so I like that you've solved a lasting problem. You probably don't churn that many people. I mean, I guess people's podcasts quit and fail. It's kind of like a, a big growing market solves all problems. It's the, almost all of these things are trade-offs, but they can almost all be counteracted by the fact that you've got a lot of people coming in the door. So you can have a lot of churn, or you can have people who don't pay that much.
1: It doesn't need to be big. It just needs to be big enough. And then it doesn't need to be growing super fast. It just needs to be growing fast enough. And and sorry, in that growth equation, especially for indie hackers, this is one that gets missed a lot, is part of your growth equation for a indie hacker isn't just how fast the market is growing. So podcasting, I don't know, maybe grows 10 to 20% a year, but the big incumbent, how many customers can i take from the big incumbent that are you know willing to switch that that comes into my growth equation for convertkit how many people are going to switch from mailchimp to him uh, actually the big one we've both noticed that seems uh, contradictory but is really cool is is we were both worried about these free tools coming in so sub substack for him and anchor for me And being like, okay, well, there's a free option. We're dead. Turns out it's just like a great gateway drug into email newsletters and podcasts. And our highest number of people who switch, switch from a a free solution. Oh, cool. So we don't even need to run a free freemium plan because Anchor's doing that for us. And then eventually people want to graduate to something more pro, better customer support is a big one. And so we've benefited from from that part too. So part of the growth is, again, podcasting, not super fast growth, but you've got Anchor. Uh, Like when we started Transistor, there was 500,000 podcasts and now there's estimates as high as 2 million. A lot of that growth has come from Anchor. It's this great like growth machine for the rest of the paid podcast hosting market and you know, if you were just an analyst, you might be like, wow, well, this, this podcasting thing is growing too slow. But the the truth is, as long as there's a big, heavy incumbent that's like shedding customers, that's growth for an indie hacker, right? If there's people uh, people that want to switch or are willing to switch. And the other benefit for indies, especially getting started, is you can almost, with the right product, you can almost grow just because you're an indie sharing your story like Derek Reimer with Savvy Cal, you know, people might be fine with Calendly and even like feature-wise, it might not be that big of a difference, but why wouldn't I, I switch to an indie, right? That you can get growth just from that in the beginning. So like whoever's the, look at, don't just look at how fast the category's growing, but also look at, okay, is there a big incumbent that's carved out this big market share that we can now come in and, you know, start getting people to switch to us from them.
0: I always wonder how much of this is like helpful and encouraging or overwhelming and discouraging to a new founder. It's like, well, here's like all the different things you can think about. You know, it's this and this and that and that, and, like a list yeah. of, a you know, hundred things. And in the grand scheme of things, like a hundred things is not that much. Like you could read through that list in a day and kind of go through the check yeah. boxes and see if your business idea corresponds to it. But it's also like, holy shit, this is so much to have to know. Maybe I just shouldn't do a startup after all. And to be fair, a lot of the most successful people that I know like didn't think about any of this stuff and happened yeah. to check a lot of the right boxes because they tried a lot of stuff. I wonder what, yeah. your, what your thoughts are on this because, like, I, I, like, my heart of hearts want people to be more thoughtful when they start things. I want them to not, you know, mess around for six months doing, you know, in a market that's obviously not going to work. When yeah, they could just go through a checklist like this, but sometimes people get overwhelmed.
1: Yeah, I mean, my baseline advice is people in motion tend to eventually find success The the caveat would be uh, as long as you're in motion in the kinds of ways that matter like the the thing about that one blog post about me growing up in this small town and only seeing what was around me and so I was like well what do I do to start a business well I start a brick and mortar shop on Main Street Uh, being in motion for me meant I got to get out of my bubble I've got to go to some conferences. I've got to meet some new people. I've got to work in a different industry. I've got to do some consulting for clients and see what what kinds of things they're buying on a daily basis. So being in motion is better than staying home and just reading Hacker News all day or even Indie Hackers all day. Like actually doing things, taking action to get more experience, build your sphere of connections, uh, get more skills, run more experiments, that's the kind of thing I mean when I say be in motion. And also, I think uh, there are a bunch of bread and butter things that uh, I think are still worth trying. So Peter Soom is doing this reform uh, forms app. and you know, and then when typeform increases their pricing, it's just easy to convince people to switch. Yeah, I mean, not easy, but it, there's a path to people there's momentum it's like okay well typeform has increased their pricing again they've restricted my account again i'll try peter's thing you know so some of these bread and butter apps and some of these apps we think of as new like we saw the product hunt launch of typeform whenever it was it's actually old now and so there's there's opportunity for a fresh face a new kid on the block to come uh, and Transistor benefited massively from that. We were kind of the first of the new batch. There's people who have come after us, but we were the first of the new batch, and we were able to make a splash. And we just got a lot of customers just because people were like, man, I've been waiting for something new. Finally, okay, I'm going to switch to you you folks. Yeah.
0: It's kind of like all the old crusty podcast hosting options, and then you finally put a fresh coat of paint on it. it yeah. It feels good to use the new shiny thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, There's there's probably opportunities in... Some of the old things that you used to build when you're a freelance contractor, like I used to build a lot of like uh, donation and fundraising widgets. I think there's like an option that you could make a business out of that. There's still lots of people that need stuff like that. Uh, the the practical like non-software thing I, was, I thought of was uh, car detailing. There's all this kind of latent demand that you might not see evidence for, but I guarantee you like... I, I bought a Tesla, like you do. Um, anybody, that, and it's my first nice car. Uh, my previous car was a Honda Fit that I bought from my dad. But once you have a nice car, you start to think about car detailing. And literally, like, this guy showed up with a business card and said, hey, do you want car detailing? And I was kind of like, yeah, I've been waiting for this. You know, like, I, I want this. This is something that I just, there's just a whole group of customers need this kind of all the time. And if you show up, you just have to give them a little nudge. Like, hey, do you need car detailing? And People are like, yeah, like, come on <laughs> over, you know? Uh, I think there's things like that in the real business world, the services, and also in the software world, where people are like, hey, are you, are you sick of Typeform? And people are like, yeah, I kind of am sick of it. Like, I'm glad you came along.
0: And so much of that is like being in the right place to find those people. Like, If you imagine the market being like a lake full of fish, uh, you could be just a, a, a terrible fishing spot where the fish yeah. aren't. You know, with indie yeah. hackers, like, it's pretty obvious in the early days that the people who wanted to start companies and bootstrap companies were, like, kind of all on Hacker News or on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And, like, luckily, I knew enough to find out where they were. And with Transistor, mm-hmm. I'm not sure where, like, most of our customers come from. But, like, I would guess that there's a lot of people who are searching and mm-hmm. SEO is, like, a big channel for you. And I think yeah. it's, you know, to this point you were making earlier where if you were an indie hacker and you're struggling with something and you're... Asking yourself, like, is the market big enough? Is it just too small? Yeah. It might just be that you're in the wrong place in the pond.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I have this old, old story on my blog where I talk about an arborist who was, he lived in a farm community, the town I grew up in, and he could not get sales. Like, he was just like going out all the time, knocking on doors, like, hey, do you need trees pruned or trimmed? And it's a town full of like farmers. So they do that stuff themselves, <laughs> you know? And he wasn't getting any phone calls. He was running ads in the phone book. Uh, this was at the time when people looked at the phone book. And then he changed two things. He changed his area code so that it was this suburb that was about 30 minutes away that had a lot of money, a lot of professionals. And then he started advertising in their yellow pages. And his business changed overnight. So he was just in the wrong place part of the pond he was he was trying to sell tree pruning to people that could just do it themselves and right you know didn't want to be bothered but changing his area code so that the suburb thought oh well he's right here i'll just call him even though he had to drive there uh that changed a lot for him and then advertising there it was like okay this is this yeah. is this is where the fish are you know
0: listen justin we've had a pretty wide-ranging conversation some real good advice here, I think packed into the end of the episode and then a lot of, uh, philosophizing and just, uh, talking about the realities of being a human on earth earlier on. I've enjoyed having you on the show.
1: Yeah, I always enjoy, uh, our conversation. So it's really,
0: really fun to be here. Uh, Where should people go to find out more about, uh, you and what you're up to? Oh,
1: uh, I'd love for people to go to transistor.fm. If you're starting a podcast or you want to switch from something else, Check out Josh's project, meeps.app, M-E-E-P-S.app, and I blog at justinjackson.ca. All
0: right. Thanks again, Justin.
1: Thanks.